Um, hi, folks. If we've met, my name is Matthew. I'm the associate pastor here. I'm really glad you're here. Um, doing something a little bit unusual today for our sermon. I'm going to get up and down a little bit. Um, I'm just going to tell you a couple of stories first up. Um, I'm going to tell you a story first up of a, uh, a great king. It'll be another king in a minute. Um, this is a very great king, and I want to tell you the story of. Um, he's great because he's actually remembered as great. I don't know how many kings in history have sought it, set out to be remembered as great, but this guy actually pulled it off. Uh, he is remembered as Herod the Great, and that's literally how he's gone down in the history books. There's the guy. I don't know what's with that hair. But that's the guy. He lived from 72 BC to 4 BC, and he ruled Israel from 37 BC to 4 BC. Um, I want to tell you about his story because he's a pretty extraordinary guy. Um, in a lot of ways, he earned uh, the title the great. Um, he was a great leader. Uh, he managed to rule people that hated him for 34 years. Um, he had incredible diplomatic ability. Like, you'll hear his story in a minute, and it's amazing what he pulled off, just relationally with governments and that sort of thing. Always got what he wanted, uh, from the Romans even. Uh, his administrative abilities were extraordinary. He built up Israel, set up networks of spies, maintained order, uh, extended Israel's borders. But he's mainly remembered as great for his building projects. Um, if you go to Israel today, you can still look all over the place and see stuff that Herod the Great built. Well, you know, told other people to build for him. Uh, this is the uh, the fortress at Masada. That's the the, the Red Sea and the, the Dead Sea. Sorry, in the background there, uh, just extraordinary. It looks the fortress on top of that would have been impregnable. It actually, wasn't. There's a Roman siege ramp there, but that's a different story. Um, so he built that. He built nine of those things around Israel. He built this massive seaport at Caesarea Maritima. Uh, that's a big deal. It's really hard to park ships off the off the coast of Israel because they just get smashed up on the rocks. The winds are too big. That sort of thing. Um, so he went right. Let's build an artificial harbour. And he did. And he built this extraordinary place where they could host international guests. And it was his statement to the world saying, I'm a big-time king. And Israel's a big-time country. And we can have the, the biggest, most important people in the world come visit us. We are a major player in world politics. Um, main thing, though, uh, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, we, in our King series, um, we've heard about how the people of Israel um, were taken into exile by the Babylonians, cut it off, and Jerusalem was basically destroyed. Uh, in the 5th century BC, they came back and did a very meagre rebuild. Um, under Herod the Great, it got its biggest expansion. Um, this is more what it looked like by the time he was done with it. Um, and you look at it and you go, okay, it's a much bigger city, and it's got this extraordinary, massive, huge thing here. It's, it's a temple. It's the temple. It's not a city. It's a, it's a temple with a city attached to it by the time he'd finished. Um, it's an extraordinary achievement. It was one of the wonders of the world. Uh, and an uh, English gentleman called Alec Garand has made a, a scale model of the thing. Uh, he's slightly crazier than me with model making. Um, and, and that's what it looks like. It's the size of 15 football fields. There was a big ravine there. He went, let's fill the ravine and, and, and make a big marble platform. So it's just massive. And, and uh, by the way, this just down here is what you call the Wailing Wall. That bit's still there. Uh, the stuff on top is basically just all gone. Um, that's... Uh, you can see it was extraordinary. People were blown away by it when they went to Jerusalem in Herod's day. It was still being built a bit, but uh, extraordinary place. Uh, Jesus' disciples asked him about it. Look at this temple. This is awesome. <laughs> uh, you can still see it today. It's got some different things on top of it now, but you can still see the outline of what Herod built, that, that massive thing. That's all that's Herod doing. This is Herod the Great. This is his legacy. Uh, extraordinary guy. Made Israel more glorious than it had been since the time of Solomon. Here's what I want to do, though. He's remembered as Herod the Great. Um, I want to tell you his story, and you decide whether he's worthy of the title. All right? Uh, here's Rome. Down in the bottom corner there, you can see Israel up here. Uh, 
That's what the Roman Empire looked like in the time of Herod. As you can see, Israel is part of it. So in 63 BC, a Roman general called Pompey came into uh, Jerusalem and conquered it. And so Israel is now a Roman uh, province. Uh, yay, Rome. Uh, that's not what they were saying. Uh, they weren't very happy. Here's how the Romans ruled. They, they basically looked for a lackey who was rich and influential to rule the place for them and be loyal to Rome, just make it work, be stable, all those kinds of things. And so they found this guy called Antipater. Uh, Antipater was Herod's father. And Antipater got the patronage of this guy in the corner here, uh, Julius Caesar. He got the patronage of Julius Caesar to be uh, the procurator of Judea. He's in charge under, under Rome's rule kind of thing. Um, Antipater wasn't a Jew. This is a big deal. He's from Idumea, which is he's in the south. So uh, the Jews aren't real happy about this. Uh, but he appointed his son, Herod, who is our guy, governor of Galilee, which is in the north. And very quickly, Herod showed what sort of ruler he would be. Uh, there were some Jewish bandits that did some stuff. Herod managed to capture them and he executed them illegally. And so the Jews were very upset about this and tried to take him to court because it was illegal. And Herod's response was to gather an army, march on Jerusalem, presumably to kill these people, uh, and his father got in the way and, and, and didn't pull it off. He's just a very ruthless, uh, erratic individual. But then Antipater died. And Herod decided he did not want to be procurator of Judea. He decided he wanted to be king of Israel. He wanted the title King of Israel. Back in Rome, up there, uh, Julius Caesar had been murdered some years beforehand, and now Mark Antony was now emperor of, of the Roman Empire, and Cleopatra of Egypt was by his side, some familiar, familiar names, I, I suspect. Um, so Herod travelled to Rome. This is Herod the diplomat. He travelled to Rome and convinced Mark Antony not to make him procurator of Judea. He said, make me King of Israel. And Mark Antony went, okay, <laughs> and he did. He made him king of Israel. Then he travelled back to Judea, Herod, uh, returned to Israel, uh, waged a military campaign, wiped out all his, uh, his enemies, basically, uh, that were opposing him. And by 37 BC, defeated everybody who could oppose him and was now effectively king of the Jews. Now, here's the thing people started to notice about Herod. Um, it was pretty normal policy in, in politics those days. If you've got rivals, you kill them off if you can. Um, everybody including the Romans, were shocked at how good he was at it. He was appallingly good at it. Straight away, he set out to wipe out the Hasmonean dynasty, the most recent kings of Israel, uh, killed off his opponent who had been the high priest and his kid and another former high priest, and then he got some bad news. Mark Antony and Cleopatra were dead. And their worst opponent, Augustus, Octavian, his other name, was now emperor of Rome. This is very, very bad news for Herod. He's thinking, how am I going to maintain rule over Israel now? He's, I'm exposed. My enemies are going to get me. So Herod the diplomat travels to Rhodes, meets Augustus, and here's what he says. He says to him, hey, I was a close friend of your enemies, Mark Antony and Cleopatra. But if you support my kingship over Israel, then I'll be even more loyal to you than I ever was to them. Augustus says, okay, let's do that. And he goes back with more power than he's ever had. In fact, he gets the title ally and friend of Rome, which is a legal title basically meaning you're invincible in Judea. You can do what you want in Judea. You're just sovereign king there. So Herod travelled back again, and now he got really ruthless about getting rid of potential opponents. This is the character of his rule as far as I'm concerned. In 29 BC, he killed his wife, Mariamne, because she might oppose him. Then the next year, his wife's mum, Alexandra, then the next year, removed his sister's husband from his role of governor of Idumea because he might oppose him, killed various other family members as well. Um, his final years were the worst. In 7 BC, 
executed two of his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. 4 BC, executed his son and heir, Antipater, because he thought his heir was a threat. Five days later, Herod died. That's his life. Now, the Romans were used to kings wiping out potential rivals, but they were shocked at how good he was at it. Uh, Caesar Augustus is reputed to have said, probably didn't say this, but it shows you the reputation. He, he said, supposedly said something like, I'd rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. It's, it's a play on words in Greek. It's something like, uh, I'd rather be Herod's hus than Herod's heels. Something, it, it's a play on words we don't get. But here's the last thing he did. Uh, very, very reckless. Um, Herod knew he was hated in Israel. His people hated him, right? And so he was pretty sad about that because when he died, people wouldn't mourn. They'd celebrate. Here's what he did. He gathered up. Uh, he had notable public figures from every town in Israel arrested and placed under guard in the Hippodrome. And he ordered them, at news of his death, the guards were to slaughter all of them so that the day Herod died, all Israel would mourn, even if not for him. When he died... His sister went and overruled him because what on earth is he going to do about it? And it didn't happen. <laughs> but that's the end of the rule of Herod the Great, king of Israel. Now, Herod the Great, what do you think? Has he earned the title? I... Herod the Ruthless? Herod the Paranoid? I want you to know he was Herod the Illegitimate. He claimed to be king of Israel, but he was not the king of Israel. He wasn't a Jew. He was not a descendant of David. He had no right to the throne of Israel. He was a rich political opportunist from Idumea who weaseled his way into an office that wasn't his to have. Here's the main thing I want you to know, though. For all his anxious plotting and scheming and killing in order to be named king of the Jews, Herod failed to defeat his most significant opponent to that title. But that's a different story. Stay tuned, I think, is the idea. Uh, there's, there's two more parts, and uh, you'll hear some more. Uh, part of what we want to do as we're unfolding this story is to reflect on the songs that we know and, uh, and to see them in a new context. So we're going to stand and sing We Three Kings, uh, who are some more kings from elsewhere. Let's stand and sing. Morning Church, our first, reading, our first reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2. So we're reading from Matthew chapter 2 and if you have a church Bible you'll find that on page 966 and a large print on page 1469. I think you'll find it on 1469, but tell me if I'm wrong. Am I right? So we're reading from Matthew chapter 2 from the top. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. 
When he called together all the people's chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for it is written that, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them exactly the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard, had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw this, the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Perhaps hearing the story of one of the characters in that reading changes how you hear it. Uh, certainly my experience. Um, our second story about a king takes place near the reign of near the end of the reign of King Herod the Great. Uh, Herod died in four BC. It's probably it's happened in five or four BC. It means Jesus was born in six BC. I'm sorry, Jesus was born BC. They got the calendar wrong. You just have to live with that. Um, at this time, Herod was uh, about seven years old, probably or just over, um, and his great achievements are all behind him. And what that means is uh, this is precisely the right time to go and see Herod the Great's kingdom at its most glorious. It is as impressive as it gets within Herod's reign at this point when some strange visitors uh, come to Jerusalem one day. Uh, 
it's really strange as well, not just because of who they are, it's really strange because they did not come to see Herod. Uh, it's not that they seem to hate him or anything, they just don't care. They just don't care about him. Uh, before we get into the actual story, there's a lot of um, kind of traditions built up around who these uh, guests were. Uh, we remember them as three wise men. Uh, let's just think about, just quickly, about what we can actually know about them, because I think that's interesting. The picture of three wise men, each with a gift in their hands and a camel behind them, is a very familiar image, I, I suppose, to, to most of us. Um, who were they really? Um, as we read the Bible, well, we don't know how many there were. Um, so three wise men comes a bunch of wise men. There were some wise men going to see Jesus. Um, they're referred to as magi, which kind of has scholarship or connotations today. Um, so just to change it up and help us to think about it a different way, we'll say a bunch of scholars uh, is probably getting, getting somewhere. Um, however, we can be more precise than that. It says it calls them magi from the east. Um, magi is a word that usually refers to astrologers or that sort of thing, or um, even sorcerers sometimes, like people who are trying to do witchcraft and things like that. Um, the word has really negative connotations. So you, you hear about these wise men, you're not supposed to think they're good guys. You're supposed to think they're bad guys. That's what they are. They're bad guys. Because whenever you read the Bible, uh, the astrology thing is, is very, very likely because of who they are and they come looking at a star. Um, and the Bible forbids astrology in no uncertain terms. God's completely against looking for the stars for signs of the times that receive guidance, Isaiah 47, Jeremiah 10, uh, lots of passages. And if you read the book of Acts, there's magi in that as well, but they're always the bad guys. They're people who disobey God and reject God's ways to look at stars and speculate instead. God gives us the Bible to know his will. He gives us promises. He speaks promises through his prophets that are recorded in the Bible so we can know his will, not look at the stars and make stuff up. And so these magi, we're supposed to, they come to, we hear about them, we're supposed to think they're bad guys. They're against God. They reject God for idolatry and for other ways to know the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. So, in fact, the wise men aren't wise at all by the Bible standards. I'm going to be really generous to them and call them a bunch of scholars of a dubious field of study. That's, that's very generous. They're bad guys. They're not good guys. They're bad guys. That's what's surprising about it. You get used to it and you get used to they're good guys. They do a good thing, but they're actually bad guys. Um, they're from the east. That means they're probably from Arabia, Babylonia, or Persia. Um, I think their gifts sound very um, Arabian. That's a, a, a main view out there. So I'm going to say a bunch of Arabic scholars of a dubious field of study. Is who they are. Um, the other thing that's clear is they're really, really rich. Really rich. You look at the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These guys have got cash uh, and resources behind them. Um, and so we've got a bunch of rich Arabic scholars of a dubious field of study. We bunch of rich Arabic scholars of a dubious field of study. Uh, it doesn't really fit. But it's probably more accurate. In fact, it is much more accurate. But that's fine. Um, that's kind of the picture of the guys we've got who are coming to see Jesus. So one day... A bunch of rich Arabic scholars of dubious field of study arrived in Jerusalem unannounced, uh, and they didn't go to see King Herod. In fact, they didn't even look to meet with him. They went around, I suppose, house to house. They asked in the marketplace. They said, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we have come to pay homage to him. It's got to be a bit embarrassing for Herod, frankly. This is Herod the Great for crying out loud. And they don't care. These rich, impressive men don't care. He built the temple. He built the seaport. He's a friend and ally of Caesar for crying out loud. Don't care. Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? That's what they say. The contrast's obvious when you think about it. Who's the one born king of the Jews? Herod's an Edomian. He's not born king of the Jews. He's not legitimate at all. And Jerusalem is not Herod's city, no matter how impressive he made it look. Jerusalem is known as the city of David because it's the seat of David's heir, the king who will rule the world forever. 
That's what Jerusalem is. And the greatest descendant of David's line's just been born. That's what they're saying. So Herod hears about it and he summons these rich Arabic scholars of a dubious field of study uh, who are searching and uh, he brings them to himself because uh, he is just shocked that there's this new threat he'd never seen happen, uh, coming. Absolutely shocked. He summons them along and he summons his uh, professional Bible nerds first and says to them, Bible nerds, You've got the Old Testament there. Where's this king of the Jews supposed to be born? They say the book of Micah in chapter 5 says that uh, that he will be born in Bethlehem. That's about nine k's away from from Jerusalem. So Herod comes up with a plan to crush his latest opponent. Uh, I suppose if he went in in force with troops and stuff, uh, they'd see them coming and people would just flee uh, because they know what Herod's like. You know what Herod's like now as well. I would run away too. Um, But here's some people who would never suspect of treachery. He calls the Arab scholars to himself in secret. And tells them what he's learnt. The one who you're looking for is in Bethlehem. But he's the corker. When you find him, report back to me where he is so I can go and pay homage to him as well. Now, everybody in the room's got to be like, <laughs> like people know what this guy's like. But there's, the only people in the room, however many of them were, are these Arab scholars, these magi. They don't know anything about Herod, I take it. And so they take him, he's on the level. Sure, we'll, we'll tell you. And so they head off to Bethlehem. Scholars set out um, and they're very excited at this stage because we read that the star reappears and moves through the sky in front of them. They follow it. I I don't know what's going on here. It's clearly something miraculous. Um, Before they just seemed to be reading constellations or something, but now there's actually a bright glowing object in the sky that they are following to Bethlehem. That's what's happening. There's a miracle going on and they're really excited. They're overjoyed is what it says. And they arrive in Bethlehem. Now, Many months, possibly a couple of years, have um, passed since a bunch of scruffy shepherds had visited uh, newborn Jesus laying in a a feeding trough. Uh, Joseph, Mary and baby Jesus are now living in a house in Bethlehem. I assume that Joseph must have got some work. Uh, The Magi Magi get to the house. They hardly even notice Mary and Joseph, I take it. Their eyes are only for the little baby they've come so far to see. And these rich, educated, impressive noblemen, these bunch of rich Arabic scholars of a dubious field of study fell down, face down on the floor, dirt floor probably, before the son of a couple of peasants and just worshipped him. It's just extraordinary. You've got to wonder how Mary responded to that, right? As a mum, very strange. I think she responded pretty well when she saw that they had gold, frankincense and murder give. Surely not since the days of Solomon had foreigners come so far just for the privilege of bowing in the presence of a king of Israel. For as Jesus would say in Matthew's Gospel later on, he is great, far, far, far greater than Solomon ever, ever was. Because Jesus isn't just a great king, he's the great king, the king they'd been waiting for for centuries and centuries. He's the one that all kings eventually would need to submit to and before whom every kingdom would give way. And so God ensured that his great king, his own son, was kept safe. The Magi don't go back to Herod, God warns them, and so they go back to their country by a different route. And then we hear about Herod getting angry and Herod the Ruthless gets into gear with Plan B. And Plan B is so shockingly awful that uh, a lot of folks have just said that couldn't have happened. Now you've heard uh, the story of Herod the Ruthless and how he protected his throne from all his paranoid usurpers that he perceived out there. I think when you hear that story, it's very easy to believe what he ordered in the passage that's so very shocking Go to Jerusalem, guards, kill all the little boys that you find. We're not talking about all of Israel, incidentally. We're talking about a little village, a few hundred people. 
It's the latest unspeakably awful act in the despicable king's reign, right towards the end of his reign. It's just the way he did politics. Jesus' family had already fled and they didn't return until Herod the Great died. And even then they settled far north in Galilee, which is about as far north as you can go without stepping outside of, uh, or out of Israel. Now, here's what I want to uh, concentrate on here from this story. Um, the story of the Magi is really, really strange, right? There's a lot of factors in it, a lot of things in it I don't actually understand. Um, God chose to communicate the news of Jesus' birth to some foreign astrologers in a language they understood which is a really, really weird star. He used a really, really weird star to communicate a thing about his son being born to them. Um, I don't know why God did that. I don't know how God did that or how they interpreted it that way, but they did. Um, the other question I have that's pretty obvious is, um, what was this thing in the sky that was moving along in front of them? How far away was it? And was it a star or was it a star? If you get, <laughs> know what I mean? A lot, of, a lot of people have thought, you know, something miraculous going on here. God made it happen. I just, I, my mind boggles. It's extraordinary. This star led them to see Jesus. But here's what I can tell you. I don't understand a bunch of things. I can tell you what the story's about. Here's what it's about. When you read this story, you should be very, very, very surprised that these magi have anything to do with King Jesus. You should be very surprised. Because they are not goodies. They are baddies. They are foreigners to Israel who have no claim on King of the Jews. They are sinners who follow idolatrous ways and reject God. And yet God in his grace drew them to himself to meet his son. Here's what you should get out of it. Who are they? Well, they're me. The wise men are me. And if you're not a Jew, the wise men are you too. Because I'm not a Jew. I don't have a claim on the king of the Jews. They were promised salvation from a long time beforehand through their king. And yet here we see foreigners and sinners coming to Jesus and being invited and welcomed in, having the privilege of bowing before that king and being invited into the family, into the kingdom. That's what you're supposed to see. You look at the nativity scene, what do you see? You see Jesus' family, they're Jews. You see some scruffy Jewish shepherds, they've got an ownership on King Jesus, King of the Jews. And you see some weirdo foreigners who are sinners who don't know anything about God, who have been invited along. Friends, when you see your little decoration nativity scene, look at the wise men and go, that's me. I've been invited along to bow before the king of the world. That's what the wise men are about. And in the story, you actually see more than just one response, though. You see three responses, time and time again, all through Matthew's gospel, but right from Jesus' birth, these three responses are there and they've been around ever since. And you've got to choose one. Here's the three responses we see. There's lots of religious people who ignore him. Here's the thing that blows me away. One of the things that blows me away about this story. Herod says, hey, Bible nerds, come and tell me about where this great king of yours is going to be born. And they open up the Bible and say, Micah says Bethlehem. It's nine k's away. Let's send the foreigners to go look for him. And they presumably don't go. They're not that interested. There's people who should know better, who know a great deal of God's ways. And when it comes to actually doing something about it and responding, just shrug their shoulders and get on with what they were doing before. There's opponents who seek to destroy him. You've got King Herod, that's pretty obvious. It's pretty obvious in our society as well. People who want the name of Jesus to have nothing to do with anything, anywhere. We just want Jesus to not be part of any social talk at all or part of uh, our relationships. We don't want to hear about Jesus. There's groups that oppose Jesus quite actively still. 
But there's others who, sinners and outsiders, who seek him out and commit themselves to him, who by rights have no claim on him. Friends, the question is not whether you will respond to King Jesus. The question is what your response to King Jesus will be. You will either ignore him you will, or you'll oppose him or you'll submit to him and there is no fourth option and there's no ambiguous options. It's either ignore him, oppose him, which are basically the same thing in the end, or coming and bowing at his feet and being welcomed into his kingdom. Isn't that an extraordinary offer for foreigners like us to the king of the Jews? I'll sum up in a minute. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Michelle. Um, Folks, I've told you two stories about kings. We've heard about a great king, inverted commas, and we've heard about a great king, the great king. Um, I'm sure you'll agree with me that the only logical way to conclude is for me to have a rant about politics for the next few minutes, so that's what I'm going to do. That was a joke. You're supposed to laugh. (laughs) I thought it was funny. Anyway, moving on. Friends, uh, I, I think um, we usually think of Christmas as a religious event, right? Uh, as, as, as people who take Christianity seriously, who, who take uh, Jesus seriously. Um, I want to suggest to you today that Christmas is not a religious event. Christmas is a political event. It is about the fact that Jesus was born king of the Jews. King is a, it's a polit- political office, isn't it? It's not a religious office. It's about being a king. It's about being in charge. Christmas is about a change in government. It's about the great king's come, he'll rule all things, and now he invites all people everywhere to submit themselves to him absolutely. Now, I think we really struggle to hear the king's bit very very seriously in our um, society today um, because the concept of being a king has been watered down so thoroughly. Now, you, you imagine you've got like cordial, you know, they get the concentrate stuff and you just add water to it and it gets like less of the colour and you add more and more water and eventually you can't even tell what colour it was anymore. Now, our concept of kingship has had something like that happen to it. I think we don't really cl- hear it very clearly at all anymore. So you, you say, oh, Australia has a queen. We know what it's all about. Yeah, queen in power and authority. Sure. 
the office has been watered down a great deal. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. All I'm saying is we struggle to hear the word king and to know what it means as the Bible says it anymore. Let me give you an older description of kingship that may scare you. <laughs> Thinking about somebody ruling like this. It scares me. Uh, a king is an absolute ruler, a sovereign in charge in every way. Their appointment is considered divinely ordained and as such it is beyond questioning. They set the vision for what their kingdom will be. They command and it is done. Their word is absolute and beyond all questioning and negotiation. It's their responsibility to, responsibility to destroy their enemies at war and lead their people to victory, protect their kingdom. They have power to do exactly as they please, to direct matters as they please, and they are not really answerable to anyone for their mistakes or even their crimes. The king simply isn't the equal of his subjects. He doesn't operate at the same level. For all practical purposes, you could say a king is a god on earth. Now, let me ask, do you think having a king of Australia like that is a good idea? I'm shaking my head. I don't think it's a good idea. Um, it causes me some concerns. <laughs> and in fact, the Bible warns us about kings like that. In our king series, well, in, in Deuteronomy 17, um, God warns Israel about the kind of king they have to have. He has to obey God's law because he can't just make it all up. He mustn't make it up. He needs to be the king under God, the great king. And we learned from our king series, as I'm sure if you were here, uh, you noticed, a lot of the kings are real disasters. And even the ones that were really good are followed by people who are disasters and the kingdom falls to tatters eventually. And then you can have Herod the Great for a king. So over time, our society moved away from the idea of kingship, just very gradually, little, little steps. Um, probably the biggest landmark for, for England was uh, when in 1649, Charles I was beheaded by his subjects for, uh, quote, crimes against humanity. Um, that they even put him on trial is a rejection of the old-fashioned idea of kingship. He's not sovereign anymore. He's under the law of England and the people can call him to account. You limit the power of the king. And so it's just been watered down over time. And now what I think about when I hear the word king or queen is, right, they wear a crown, they live in a palace, they probably own some dogs, and they give a message at Christmas. Like, that, 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 that's about it. Like, for, for me, it doesn't have any notions of real power anymore or ruling in a, in a real way. And so here, you need to submit to Jesus as king and you just... I don't hear how absolute that claim is, really. It's just such a different idea. Friends, here's what we need to hear. Jesus is not willing to negotiate with you. We are not appointing Jesus to be prime minister of our lives. He isn't taking suggestions from us as to how his kingdom should be run. He demands that we bow the knee to him and unquestioningly obey his will forever. Jesus calls on us to submit to him as king. Total allegiance. And so we read Psalm 2 before. It sounds a bit scary. He's got so much power. He's going to destroy his enemies, is what it says. Kiss the sun while you have an opportunity, lest his anger be built up and lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. A terrifying picture. It's saying, out of fear, make sure you treat this king right. He's given an amnesty. The last verse there, it says, it's wonderful. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. How do you respond to the great king? Don't run away. Run to him. He's offered an amnesty. You can submit to him, you can trust him, you can find salvation in him. But it's not just an act of fear. Fear is a good motive, but it should actually be a really joyful thing to submit to the king. A really joyful thing. Um, I think one of the biggest reasons our society moved away from kingship is, frankly, nobody can do it. Nobody can do it properly. Um, the job is too big. It's too hard. It is an impossible job for anyone to do. Um, I've, I've watched um, The West Wing with Mandy. People watch The West Wing. It's about the President of the United States ruling America as president. It's not king, but in some ways you might think it is. Um, but I look at that show and I go, I don't think anybody has ever existed who can do that job properly. 
Not, look, you can't do the job. It's too hard. It's way too hard. What do you need to be a, a king? Out of our king series, I had a bit of a reflection on this. What should a king look like? I think you need at least three things. Just think about it with me for a minute. A king needs to have a sincere and unwavering desire to rule over their subjects in righteousness. They need basically complete moral perfection, right? They need to be good, and good in a way that I haven't seen before. They need to have power. They need to not be... They need to basically not be a sissy with no real power to do things. They need to be able to enforce their will and protect their kingdom and bring law and justice. And they need to be able to do that over generations so that their office isn't lost when they die and it doesn't just fall to the floor when somebody worse comes in. Lastly, they need wisdom like I've never seen before. If this, this click is running out of battery. They need to be able to understand and implement every aspect of what it takes to make a society function well. And I don't think a human being has had the wisdom to do that. As I say, watching the West Wing, I don't know how you govern America in a way that gets everybody's interests right and the right balances and uses resources rightly. You can't do it. I can't do it. There has never been a person who has had these qualities in sufficient measure to be a king properly. There never has. And even when there's been a really good king... They've wavered and compromised. The king's power has been taken away by death in the end. And, yeah, wisdom's laughable. I I don't think anybody could rule a kingdom properly. But here's the thing, and this is what Christmas is about. You think about absolute submission to a ruler. Let me ask you, if you had someone who was so utterly good that you were confident, so confident in their desire to look out for yours and everybody's best interests, that you would rather trust them to rule than yourself? What if you had a ruler who had complete power to crush all evil, establish justice completely, whose kingdom can't be threatened by death or opposition, and whose reign would never be ended by death, their own death or their subject's death? What if you had a king so full of wisdom and understanding about how creation works, how people work, how society works, that he really can fix society's problems without making any mistakes and he really can, in a practical way, implement justice completely. What if you had a person for the job like that? See, the whole point of Christmas is we have. You don't need to imagine it. This is why Jesus came. The king has come. That king has come. And he's given a time of amnesty so people can join his side and be part of a kingdom with a ruler like that with a ruler who won't drop the ball in goodness, power or wisdom. And so again, there's only three responses to that king. There's ignore him, there's oppose him, or there's bow the knee to him. Absolutely, he's a king, he's not a prime minister. Bow the knee absolutely to him and say, I will do everything you say. I want to be part of your kingdom and I want you to be completely in control and not take silly suggestions from me. (laughs) That's the kind of king we need. So we're going to finish by singing today, Joy to the World, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Uh, Because that's what it's about. And incidentally, if you didn't know, uh, this isn't really a Christmas song. It's a song about Jesus' second coming to be king, to rule like that, when the curse goes away, when he does away with it and establishes justice. So it's kind of a Christmas song as well. But it's a Christmas song that's looking forward to Jesus coming again to establish that kingdom.